Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today I'm joined once again by a returning friend of the show and Daily Horror Habits resident zombie expert, Bernie, to chat about George A. Romero's groundbreaking 1968 zombie classic, Night of the Living Dead. Currently streaming on Tubi TV, Pluto TV, HBO Max, and YouTube, Night of the Living Dead focuses on a group of survivors taking refuge in an isolated farmhouse from undead ghouls who feast on human flesh. Bernie, welcome to the show. Man, I'm, I'm really happy to be back, man. This is a great movie to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... This is a movie that I came to pretty late. I probably saw this when I was in high school when I was around 18 or so, but it's one that I find myself returning to more and more frequently. And it's definitely one that uh, the explicit kind of just social commentary that's intertwined within the movie is the perfect kind of example of the benefits of storytelling that horror provide. Right. And I mean, George A. Romero does a phenomenal job. This is the, I believe this is the original zombie movie. Uh, I'm not sure if there was like a film noir version of it, but there had been previous zombie movies, but it was very much the kind of stereotypical version that were like tied up in voodoo and witchcraft, which most of the time it was kind of, I forget the title of the film, but there was one in the fifties, but it was kind of like about how Africans are possessed and becoming demons or something like that. There's like some very uh, probably not very socially acceptable depictions of African-Americans from back in the day. Just that was kind of the original uh, few examples, I think, from back in the day. But this was really the one that kind of opened up and created its own lexicon of what zombies actually were. Um, And yeah, exactly. And really, this is the movie that spawned a generation, an entire couple decades worth of zombie films after it came out. And God, are we better off for it, especially during quarantine. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, this movie, how it starts out, um, you know, I think the most iconic moment from it is literally in the first three minutes when uh, they could, uh, what's her name? Barbara's brother, Johnny, is, I'm coming to get you, Barbara. And yeah. Uh, we're not really aware at this point um, what zombies are, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in theory, if we're going all the way back there. So, you know, to see a guy far off in the distance just slowly, clumsily walking along, you know, I it just it, it unnerved me for some weird reason. I knew what it was, you know, obviously now. But mm-hmm. um, even with that, like just trying to place myself in their position, um, that it's broad daylight. Like you just think it's just some random guy in a cemetery and all of a sudden, you know, you, you learn the unfortunate fact that that's not the case. Yeah, that's a really fantastic uh, opening. And I think his performance, even though he's only in the first five minutes of the movie and he's in the last 30 seconds of the final scene. Uh, that performance really like sets the tone for the movie where he's kind of like jokingly teasing his sister, but mm-hmm. at the same time, it's like a creepy voice that he's doing. And he's like, kind of, he's like hanging onto the sides of graves and stuff. Like he's about to jump out at her. But then of course we learn that what's actually hunting them is the guy, they just assume it's like a drunk guy or something that's stumbling around. Um, so I'm curious, when was the first time you, that you remember watching this? I was a young kid, man. I, yeah. I started loving, I, I don't know why I loved horror movies ever since I was kind of younger. So probably like nine or 10 is when I got my first introduction to this. Mm-hmm. And 
um, you know, it kind of spawned my interest in looking at Dawn, you know, Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, uh, the sequels and stuff like that. So um, it was probably like right around that preteen area. What about you? Yeah. So like I said, I think I, the first time I saw it was when I was in high school um, mm-hmm. or maybe a little before that, but it was definitely one of those movies where the first time I watch it, I kind of just took it at face value. Like this is the roots of zombie movies. And then as we move on from night of the living dead, we move into dawn and then day of the living dead or day of the dead. Um, and just like appreciating it for the roots and then seeing like the bigger sequels and how they kind of just grew and grew and grew all the way up to like land of the dead and whatnot. Um, but this one, I think I really appreciate for its simplicity. And obviously they made this movie on like no money. I think they, the final total was like $114,000 budget yeah, um, but just the the foresight that they were able to have to, while it was kind of partially because of the budgetary constraints, but in filming it in a rural area and not having it be in this kind of bustling city or a metropolis, right? It really cr- presents a terror that everybody can relate to in some extent. Like the idea of having it set in a farmhouse that looks like any farmhouse you've ever seen that's kind of out in a rural area it kind of impresses upon the viewer like this can happen in your backyard. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like, especially in the fifties when they had a bunch of monster movies and sci-fi invasion movies and things like that, mm-hmm. a lot of them took place in the cities. Mm-hmm. So if you're not living in the city, it feels very removed in a lot of ways. Whereas mm-hmm. it, I mean, all the sets in the movie are fairly basic. We go from just an average cemetery to like mm-hmm. the fields in the country and then a farmhouse. Right. Um, you know, simplicity, I think is really what this movie excels at. Um, you know, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but the music, the Mm -hmm. the sequences in this, it's some of the best that I've ever seen in a, in a horror movie. And this was 52 years ago, 50 years ago, this was created, you know, Mm -hmm. nowadays, I think, uh, music isn't really used enough in, in kind of helping to prolong kind of the horror the anxiety that that characters are feeling Mm -hmm. um you know to start when she gets into that car um after johnny's been you know killed or whatever right um that ghoul that's chasing her down the music that's kind of helping to lift the panic it again it just starts to set a tone that you know for every kind of critical situation you're going to hear that you know that music kind of rolling along and that's just going to make you more and more antsy um so i'm not sure who the the composer was or the gentleman that was in charge of the soundtrack here but i mean they did a phenomenal job uh, writing that piece. so the music's actually kind of interesting and something that i just learned the other night when i was watching the making of they used it was called like a, there's like a library of music back in the day that uh, was pre-produced music that was essentially something that was, it wasn't like professionally scored. It was like, yeah, somebody composed it, but it was more kind of just music that people would pay a little bit of money for. And it wasn't as professional of a quality as you would use in like a big A-lister movie, but it is something that they would pull and pick and choose tracks from for B-movies, commercials and the like. Um, and so Romero really like scoured through this selection of music that wasn't typically used in big uh, or more more so like well-regarded films and whatnot and very professional films. But mm-hmm. he was able to sort of like sift through these volumes of seemingly endless amounts of this 
quote unquote, like underproduced music and really right. pick out the music that he could envision being used in the key kind of seminal moments of the film that really, like you said, helped to establish not only like the tone and the tension, but kind of just like even some of the more low key moments of them in the house. Mm-hmm. Even if we don't necessarily see zombies at every single moment at the same time though, like he never lets you forget that they're outside and right. that the characters themselves, while they're having a lot of kind of just arguments between one another, like there is still this exterior force that's threatening them from the outside. Mm. It's interesting. I mean, I think The Walking Dead ends up picking up on this as well, that uh, a critical kind of theme in this movie is that uh, instead of people working together, they work against each other in some capacity, and that only exacerbates the situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You kind of mentioned it earlier. There there were a couple of scenes in this movie where if this was pitched today, uh, there's absolutely no chance this would come through the way it is. One of them, and this is something that I, there was two scenes in this that I really don't remember kind of how they went. I thought Barbara had just collapsed. I completely forgot that Ben just straight up like Muhammad Ali'd her in the face. And that was a little like throughout the entire movie, she's kind of in a daze and he's like, yeah, her brother just died. It's like, dude, she definitely has a concussion. (laughs) she's just laying on the side of the couch for you know three hours and people are like man she must be going through a rough time like i mean in theory so so this is a great segue actually into something that i obviously was unable to appreciate as much as i do now when i originally saw it and i'm sure you said you saw it when you were nine or ten so i'm sure it the uh kind of like societal undertones of the film kind of probably alluded you at nine or 10. You kind of just took it for face value like I did. But right. yeah, so that is very indicative of violence against women in movies predating like, well, I guess it still happens frequently in movies, but in terms of just like the sixties, like you had stuff like honeymooners, which I think was even had preceded that, yeah. but uh, like vi- care, um, casual violence against women. Um, but the fact that he's African-American, that Ben played by uh, famously by Dwayne Jones, like he's an African-American and to have a black man who is actually the lead of the film yep. strike a white woman in a film and there be no repercussions for it mm-hmm. is just like unheard of at this point mm-hmm. for 1968. And I mean, one thing that I also didn't appreciate before is how Romero really subverts the audience's idea of who the protagonist is in the film. Like we assume Barbara is the part is the protagonist because she's in the first 10 minutes of the movie with her right. brother. But then we quickly realize as soon as she gets to the farmhouse and Ben shows up, like Ben is the true protagonist of the film. And mm-hmm. not only in just a way of saying like he's in charge, but his performance towers over everybody else that's in the film. It does. I, I don't know if, Uh, Like, it seemed he was taller than everyone else in those shots. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's just naturally Dwayne is bigger than everybody else or that was shot that way. Um, But, yeah, 100%, I agree with you. He was just – he had kind of an aura of dominance around him, and Mm -hmm. I trusted him, you know, when at at some point Harry and – I I forget uh, Judy's Judy's boyfriend's name, Tom. Tom. There we go. Yeah, when uh, Harry and Tom kind of come up after they hear uh, Ben kind of, you know, trying to solidify the house, you can tell that, you know, Tom is a really nice kid, but he's not a leader. He's more Mm -hmm. of a follower, right? And Harry is, 
he has a decent idea, but he's willing to throw out all other ideas in lieu of that just on the basis of being right. And mm-hmm. I think his wife, uh, Helen, actually mentions that at one point in the movie, um, you know, saying, like, you, you know, when is enough enough? You know, yeah. when, when can you just be wrong for once? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the the way that the movie kind of goes in that direction, I think that the audience, even after seeing Ben strike Barbara, right, you still kind of trust him more than you do Harry. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe just me rewatching, and I already kind of hated Harry. From you know, <laughs> he ma- he certainly um, makes it easy, right? Yeah, he really does. And uh, you know, again, th- as the movie progresses, we don't even know that his daughter is bitten mm-hmm. until I think you know within the last like 30, 40 minutes of the movie. I mean, they have a couple of different dialogue scenes beforehand. Um, so again, you know the the way that they unfold this entire movie, even in 90 minutes, I think the character development in this 90 minutes is better than a lot of movies have with, you know, two, three hours of time on their hands. So they just did a great job in that regard. Yeah. And really, I mean, from the opening moments of us meeting Ben, you can tell that again, like we're never told explicitly in certain ways that he is the lead of the film, but you just kind of naturally assume that he is because Barbara obviously is like super frantic and she starts go- becoming hysterical. And yet he's clearly like emotional about it when he gives that really fantastic monologue uh, when he, they go into the living room and he's breaking up the table talking about how he's been sworn. He saw the diner that he was at get swarmed by 50 or 60 zombies. And then he drove through them and their bodies were like flying over the truck as he drove through them. And it's a really kind of disturbing, but very moving monologue in a lot of ways. Cause it's like, you feel for this guy. And meanwhile, Barbara is just like going into hysterics and whatnot. And it kind of dispels the, uh, white savior kind of, mm-hmm. uh, framework of a lot of films back in the day. Like it's very clear who could lead this conversation or who could lead their survival basically, or who's in charge. Cause for the most part, he's very kind of like calm about everything. He's very, he's obviously distressed, but him being stressed and scared just like everybody else's doesn't get in the way of him kind of like prioritizing his safety and their safety and boarding up the house and finding weapons and food and all these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, kind of moving towards the, you know, kind of when the action starts to happen, they've boarded up the house, they find a television or in the radios obviously on, and they realize that there's, forget the specific term, but there's essentially an outpost that's relatively close by. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like, I think they said there was like a top of a mountain or something like that. Um, so, or top of the hill, excuse me. Um, so did you agree with the actual kind of plan that they executed? Um, or, or I mean, obviously it didn't get executed well, but right. Right, <laughs> I would say it, it, that unfolded about as poorly as it could have. I mean, <laughs> If that's always the thing, and that's what I really like about this film, that I so not to get too too far into the future of Romero's uh, future films, but like this is essentially chapter one of a trilogy of apocalyptic zombie movies that he did: Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Living Dead, and then Day of the Dead. Um, and just kind of like each film captures a different idea of how the day is going to progress, and or how the zombie apocalypse is going to progress basically. And each of them captures different elements of humanity and things like that. And this film is interesting to go back and watch because we look, we 
more easily realize than um, how naive people are. This idea that like this will be wrapped up in a couple of days, even the redneck police chief that they're cutting back and forth between with the uh, interviews. He's like, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll have this wrapped up in like 14 hours or 24 hours or something. And it's like this idea that actually people leaving these isolated areas and going to converge at one singular location, like that's how the virus spreads. And that's essentially what like dooms humanity. So right. my ass is staying in that farmhouse until ever. <laughs> Would you have stayed in like where Ben was talking about, like outside in in the house in that sense, like on the, I would have barricaded myself upstairs. You would have. Okay. Yeah, Cause then, I mean, you could jump out of a window if you had to. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. I, I would have probably had some sort of, you know, maybe a couch or something that you can kind of push down the stairs in case you had to run up. Yeah. Um, but I, I would have still fortified the house, but I, I agree. I don't, I think both of us would agree that we wouldn't have gone down into the cellar and just locked ourselves. And that seems like a horrible idea. And that's even what really solidifies the idea that um, Ben is the ultimately the only one that should be in charge, no matter um, how badly Harry Cooper, who's played by Carl Hardman, wants to be in charge. This idea that he has, especially since he's so hardheaded that when he's confronted with the uh, the weakness or the lack of logic of barricading yourself into an area that has no exit. Like when that's presented to him, he's like, oh, it's not a big deal or something like, or he just kind of brushes it off. And it's like, if we all go in the basement and they get in, there's nowhere for us to escape to. And that right. kind of just shows like as a tacticianer, why would we listen to anything else he has to say, especially when he's almost manically kind of defending this plan that essentially sounds like a suicide plan. But something I want to get your take on that I never really actually remembered about Night of the Living Dead is the source of the zombie virus or apocalypse, however you want to put that. It's supposed to be from like a satellite yeah, that comes back to Earth and it has like un- uh, unnatural levels of radiation. Yes. And so essentially that is indicated without directly being said is the cause of the zombie. What did you think of that? Uh, I mean, I think you mentioned, I, I don't re- recall exactly what the movies were in the 50s that were kind of alien or UFO based, mm-hmm. but I think George Romero was trying to create an idea that as as silly as it is or as crazy it is, a feasible way to make that realistic. Mm-hmm. And I think they called them ghouls, not even zombies. I think yeah. that was terminology for him but i like the idea i mean again you know this is 60 years ahead or 50 years ahead excuse me obviously i i think we can be a little bit more creative now than they could back then but i like the idea of the or at least the genesis of that idea yeah i really i was surprised because it's something that they never touch upon again i'm pretty sure in the rest of his uh zombie movies and certainly i can't remember of any other zombie movies that had done that it's but to your point, I think it really is a sign that he really is like the godfather of an entire genre because even if he moved away from it, he at least had some sort of concrete basis for why this was happening. It didn't it wasn't kind of just something random that happened, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, so uh, you know, I don't want to jump to different ones. I mean, t- so like 28 days later and those guys, those are rage zombies, right? Or that's the rage fire. Yeah, that's like a infection. Right. Um this these type of zombies are very different than Z Nation or 
um, uh, dead set, those kind of things, right? Um, I think they're all, they have somewhat distinct differences, even though they're all under the zombie genre in essence. But I, I hate and love these zombies at the same time just because <laughs> I, you know, that scene when Ben is kind of, he has the fire, like the, um, the wooden piece with the fire at the end of it, right? The torch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Apparently I can speak English very well. Uh, he has that torch and he's like running through a, a just a gaggle of zombies there. And he's like waving at him and kind of juking his way back to the farmhouse. That's feasible with these kind of zombies that there's no way you're getting through that. If it's the 28 days later zombies, even I think the walking dead zombies are a little bit different than these kind of ones. Cause these zombies can like, they can hit they can use objects, right? Right. Um, I think there's a few very minor scenes in The Walking Dead where zombies like use some sort of object to try and break something. But um, these are kind of, again, just the way that they move, the way that they're shot, um, it's, it, it's just so eerily creepy to me. I, I love it. I mean, that's something that I really actually like about the original uh, Night of the Living Dead in terms of the zombies. They're always trying to get in, but at the same time, they're not running. They do start to use things towards the end of the movie, but that doesn't happen too quickly. So mm-hmm. it forces, it really forces the emphasis to be on what's happening inside of the house after a certain point, rather than what happened, what's happening on the exterior. Um, and that's something that the walking dead comics, not that I don't think the show did picked up on it as well, but the comics really focus on the idea that surviving with people in an apocalypse is harder than surviving what the, some of the ramifications being the zombies, like especially in the comics after, I don't know how many issues, like the zombies almost don't even become scary anymore. They just become a reality of life. And it's kind of just dealing with people. People are the things that are actually like more dangerous. And Mm -hmm. so in the film, kind of the simplicity of the zombies, the fact that they're not running, that they're not climbing up the second story of the house and all this stuff, it really does allow the emphasis to be on the struggle and the conflict between the characters inside the house, primarily being Harry and Ben fighting for, uh, for dominance or for fighting who's in charge essentially. But uh, what did you think of the use of the radio and TV reports to convey exposition throughout the film? So in, in the way that they did that, I liked it. I mean, I think for the budget that they had, they had to, again, you know, going back to the beginning, we said simplicity is key for this movie. They did an excellent job with the resources they had and the the limitations that they had. Um, But that being said, I mean, the, the broadcasts that happen um, for instance, with like the sheriff, right. He's talking to the reporter and he's like, you know, I, I'm really not sure when we'll be able to do it. I know that we can, but you know, I can't give you a time frame. I think that's almost word for word for what uh, the the uh, sheriff says in Dawn of the Dead, the new one, mm-hmm. when they're up in the mall and they're like looking at the TVs. There's a reporter talking to a sheriff, and again, they're just the mannerisms, the way that he has like those that bullet strap on his chest. Uh, it's very much resembles it. So um, again, I think the simplicity behind the message, the simplicity was great, but the message that they were able to deliver with that simplicity um, is, is again, another testament to how good they made this movie on those little resources that they had. Yeah. And something that I really appreciate about them using that as a way to deliver exposition is that it doesn't, it makes all of the characters on 
equal footing. Nobody has an explanation for anything. And all of the information that the characters and the viewer themselves receive about the sort of zombie apocalypse as it's starting is all exterior information. So it's almost as if like it's I recently reviewed the film uh, Pontypool, which I know you've seen. Um, and it's kind of like this idea of being reliant on exterior information, even if it's things that you can't necessarily see unfolding yourself. Like we're seeing the news reports, but I don't remember in the news reports if they actually show zombies. It's always people talking about these things that are happening. Yes. Right. So it kind of creates this idea that there's always a little bit of doubt. Like it's you being explicitly told something that defies reality, especially mm-hmm. when the uh, the radio broadcaster keeps re- repeating this phrase that um, what is it? The un- they're rising from the dead and they're feasting on human flesh. Like this idea that's so insane that defies all reality or idea of reality and being told that over and over, like you can't believe that when you hear it. But then of course, once we see that long sequence um, when the zombies are outside of the house and they start eating all the different meat and body parts of Tom and Judy, like we, the characters in that house learn pretty quick that this is a reality. This is a very, very real situation. That is, I mean, I don't know if that's the most iconic zombie scene, um, at least zombie like death or cringe inducing zombie scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely in that top three because watching those different like there's zombies playing with like guts and trying to bite, you know, different pieces of it. And there's like a woman eating a foot. Uh, and then in the background, again, you continue seeing zombies walking. So there's just that, uh, you know, in your the back of your mind, it's like, okay, there's just more and more coming. It's just never ending. Um, that I, I love that scene so much. And, I you know, kind of going back to when I was eight, nine years old and I first watched this, that's one of the, the biggest scenes that stuck out to me just because of how – incredibly real they kind of made that happen you know so when this movie came out in 1968 the uh the mpa ratings board wasn't a thing really so they so they just had general audiences going to this movie not knowing what was going to be depicted and so uh, there's like all a bunch of the reviews that came out really panned this movie and tried to like skewer romero for like negatively impacting society and showing people this types of stuff that a lot of people, like 90% of audiences had never seen anything like this, this bloody, gory, people eating organs and intestines and body parts. Like they were traumatizing some kids back in the day, but that's not the filmmaker's fault. Like that's a ratings thing or a parent's thing that they should have been worrying about. But it, to your point though, that scene is so well made and I think really holds up in capturing just how disturbing this new introduction to just the possibilities of like carnage in horror movies especially like even more disturbing for me now is like, because we've all seen now with practical, modern practical effects and CGI, like a lot more gruesome things, but mm-hmm. really what captures the atmosphere and the mood of that scene for me is the sound design. Mm-hmm. It's almost like ASMR or something where you can just like, you hear their lips smacking and you hear them like ripping off pieces of flesh. Like it's grotesque, mm-hmm. but it really does capture like, this almost like fever dream portrayal of just like this nightmare that these characters are living through. Mm-hmm. And again, you, it's black and white, right? So you don't actually see blood necessarily. I mean, uh, it's, it's not as vivid as it would be in color, mm-hmm. but again, 
I think it's just as powerful, if not more powerful, because you envision it. And I think, um, it, you know, imagination is sometimes scarier than reality. Mm. Um, and especially the way that, again, George A. Romero is able to portray that, um, you know, he does a, he does a good job of it. Let me, let me ask you this. So kind of going towards the end, what, what did you think of how that played out? Um, you know, is this all kind of on Harry uh, or, you know, did Ben kind of dig his own grave as well by not trying to be at least a little bit more diplomatic, so to speak? How, how, did, how did you feel that ended? No, I think that's all on Harry. To be honest, like I get, they have this really seminal moment that I think not only is a big moment in terms of like the narrative, but also like just instilling how uh, strong of a performance Dwayne Jones gives. Like I, th- I believe this is his first feature film, and so he was a stage actor. Basically, that was his background, and this is the first film that he was ever in. And just the amount of like power that he brings to this role, like. There's the scene where they're fighting about who's going to take which part of the house, basically. And he goes, you can be boss down there. I'm boss up here. Like, he says that whole line with his whole fucking chest. Like, he's like, up here, this is what we're doing. And you're going to listen to me or you can get. He actually tells him to get at one point, which, again, it's just like for 1968, having a black guy telling a white guy to get is just like unimaginable now. I'm breaking yeah. But uh, yeah, no, definitely uh, Harry dug a grave for essentially everybody because it his character really is, again, like the seminal character that's in every single zombie movie to the point that it's a joke now. Like, oh, that person has the energy of the character in a zombie movie that would hide their bite from the rest of the cast, or the rest of the survivors. And it just shows like no matter how strong a plan is, one person is always going to feel inferior in some way and try to get power for themselves and just fuck it up for everybody else. Dead set. Good example of that. Yes, too. exactly. Yeah. Every single movie without fail, there's a character that again, their own ego gets in the way of the survival of everyone. And it eventually just kind of unravels everything. So, so let me ask you, I mean, that last 10, 15 minutes is filled with some pretty crazy death scenes there. Um, what was the one that kind of stood out from you kind of post the, the explosion that took out Judy and Tom? I mean, Helen's death by her own daughter's hand is just, it remains one of the probably most disturbing scenes ever shot in black and white. And to your point, you mentioned black and white earlier. This is one of those films that it came out at a time where they had color films but if you were making a black and white film in this era, it was because you didn't have enough money to produce it or to have it shot in in color, however that processing works. But at the same time, this movie would not be the same if it were in color. I agree with that. Like yeah. this, and they speak about this in the making of that I watched. The fact that it's in black and white, it makes it feel like you're watching the news or a newsreel, which mm-hmm. like lends this layer of like authenticity to what's happening almost that really helps to convey the atmosphere that this isn't a silly B monster movie. Like it, again, it, the way that the film is shot is the same as the newsreel that they're watching constantly on TV. So mm-hmm. the pair, there's no real parallels. It's, this is the experience and we're in it and these characters are in it. But right. to go back to Helen's death, like just the entire way that that film is shot, not only is 
she being killed by the ha- at the hands of her daughter, who's become zombified. But then, make matters worse, her zomber grabs the, her zombie daughter grabs the spade off of the tools rack and starts stabbing her to death more, and not just once, but like thirty times. And that again, going to that sound, that echo that mm-hmm. they do, it happens some of the times. Uh, like again, when Tom and Judy's car blew up, and they. Uh, uh, Harry and Ben were looking outside and they saw that you hear that little, it's like a spacey kind of almost echo. And you heard that throughout Helen's death, her kind of screams, you know, echoing in that fashion. Mm-hmm. It, get, it just, it's very eerie to me. I mean, I agree with you. That's definitely one of the worst ones. Um, have you seen resident evil before? I have. Do you remember that scene where like the elevator shaft or whatever, the doorway opens and there was like a cocky soldier and he gets just mobbed by like, you know, 30 zombies that just, you know, tear him apart. Mm -hmm. I feel like Barbara's death, even though it wasn't as graphic, that was so much worse. I I hated that death in every single way. I felt so bad for her. You Mm -hmm. see Johnny take her and like basically throw her into a throng of different ghouls or zombies, whatever they call it. Um, It just, it's heartbreaking. But also at that point, then when you're Ben, it's like, you can't do anything about that. You just watched her die. You shot Harry. You have to go downstairs. And basically again, now you're taking Harry's plan throughout this, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And to have him stumble onto um, the, uh, excuse me, um, Harry and Helen's daughter, like, I think she was eating the dad, if I'm not mistaken. She was eating Harry. So she was eating him. He throws her off because she comes upstairs and he he throws her onto the sofa or something. And then he barricades him in the basement. And then he has to double tap uh, Harry and Helen. You know, he put one extra bullet into Harry, by the way, then he had a little aggression. Also, for as good as Dwayne Jones's performance was. He doesn't learn very quickly that you need to shoot them in the head. He keeps <laughs> shooting them in the chest, which I mean, again, the uh, even the practical effects in this I thought were surprisingly good. But uh, an interesting, you mentioned Johnny showing up again in the last moment to kill Barbara. Mm-hmm. I learned an interesting factoid about that and that they filmed the graveyard scene with the two of them at the beginning of the film last. And mm-hmm. they were afraid that people wouldn't remember who Johnny was because he's in the first five minutes of the film and then you don't see him for 80 minutes. So they decided to include the little touch with the uh, driving gloves Mm -hmm. where in the beginning of the movie, he's like making a point to play with them and put them on. And then at the end of the film, he shows up with them and he, uh, I think he he just grabs her with them or he sticks his hands on the door frame and the camera lingers there. I mean, little touches like that really, really show just, how visionary Romero was in ensuring that like the audience never was confused. They never became lost in what was happening. And considering how, I mean, how small their budget was, the film looks incredible. I think still like the way that it shot, I had not remembered that this movie was shot as well as it was like not only the use of shadowing on things, but he adopts and he returns to it a lot, but I think it really works well is that low angled shot where it's like almost at ground level and it's looking up at the actors that incorporated with the shadowing, I think adds a lot of drama and tension to certain scenes in a way that I don't know necessarily a lot of horror movies outside of people like Alfred Hitchcock were doing back then. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, again, that 
you know, to put those two in a category of their own in terms of horror, I think it's very fair nowadays, even after 50, 60 years of them, you know, starting this essentially. Um, let me ask you, I mean, towards the end, you know, we've talked about movies that have, that are great movies, but their endings are kind of frustrating. Mm-hmm. Was this satisfying to you? Was this, did that anger you? Like In terms kind of, of the ending? Yeah. How did oh, you feel? Furious. <laughs> that fucks me up every single time. Mm-hmm. And so in the end of the movie, obviously he survived, Ben survives the night. He comes out of the basement and he comes out because he hears gunshots, lots of them. So, and we see that like the redneck militia essentially is coming to save the day. And what does the redneck militia do? And they see somebody walking around inside the house. They just shoot first and ask questions later. Uh, and this is really interesting because originally the film was not written with an African-American in the lead, ideally. This is something that just stemmed from Dwayne Jones came to audition and he gave the best performance and nothing was changed in the script. Mm-hmm. And it really is interesting how this film takes on an entire different uh, connotation and uh, underlying themes and whatnot because the lead actor ends up being African-American. So it makes this this uh, freak accident ending take on this whole new racial connotation of, yeah, it's a pack of white men hunting things down and they end up killing an African-American survivor. Mm-hmm. But also, like, at the end of the film, that changes from film to uh, still images, which I didn't remember at all. Again, this is why like the older you get, it's good to revisit movies because you forget a lot of different moments that end up really sticking with you. At the end of the movie, it's the white men are standing around him and they take out those meat hooks. And then they start like they hack into him with it to drag him out of the house into a fire. And you can't not see that the, he's making some par- that Romero's making some parallels to a lot of things that he was seeing probably during the civil rights movement right. in that these still photographs of police officers beating African American protesters and all of these different things like that scene takes on a whole new meaning just based off of the actor being African American which i mean if it had just been an all white cast like they envisioned when they wrote the movie because it was the 60s like Nobody was making movies like this with African-Americans in the lead. I mean, it's just remarkable. And he Romero even says that it was a, um, what was the quote? He says it's it's basically like a, a mistake, but it was a beneficial mistake. Like they didn't mean to make this movie have this rate, the racial undertones that it did. But in the end, like that's part of the reason why this film is so widely regarded as being, uh, like the pristine example of horror being a vessel for greater commentary or social commentary. That's interesting. I mean, that ending, again, you talk about the way that they use uh, the the lighting in there, right? Mm-hmm. The first still you see, and again, it's accompanied with that very eerie, like space horror music, right? Um, or like the space horror echo. Um, you see like these, this shadow of a guy you don't see his eyes but you see his mouth mm-hmm. and his nose and he's like looking down on ben's dead body mm-hmm. and then you start to see the, the hooks and all that stuff and that's i don't that's so fascinating that they didn't have that in mind in some kind of sense mm-hmm. uh, 
Because again, I mean, that's an interesting kind of, you know, double whammy to, to have it be very eerie and have that kind of that undertone. Um, but it, I, again, I think it just goes to show and uh, that's why George A. Romero is, as you said, kind of revered as the, the godfather of, uh, of zombie films and, and horror movies really in that sense. Um, he just, this, this movie is a catapult for a phenomenal generation of different movies that come after it. Yeah. And I mean, clear in, uh, it's something else that I learned was that in 1999, the library of Congress, uh, for preservation included the film into the national film registry because they deemed it culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. So, I mean, not only on top of like being loved by five generations of horror, uh, five decades worth of horror fans, but also like this movie has such a significance to it, not only in terms of the genre, which obviously it's referred to as, he's referred to as the godfather of zombie movies because of how influential it is. But also, again, like I had said uh, previously, just in terms of showing that, uh, I think this director, Frank Darabont, said it best. He said, genre films are often underestimated, Mm -hmm. but they're often most, they're often mostly the most effective in illuminating and talking about the human condition. And I think that this film is a perfect example of that. And we would see that not only moving forwards with Romero's uh, zombie trilogy in Dawn of the Dead and in Day of the Dead, but also just horror movies in general, like movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, movies like Scream, Halloween, all of these different movies, they're all reflective. It's more than just what you see on the poster, basically. It's always reflect, it's typically they're reflective of a director's experience with the world, their personal experiences in life and all these different things. So when people like to say things like, oh, horror movies are mindless or something like that, I'm like, well, you've been watching mindless movies or you haven't been understanding what you're watching. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, I think, uh, I forget what, what the professor's name was that told me this, but, um, he basically said, like, if you look at advertisements and you don't like it, it's probably not geared for you. Mm-hmm. I think it's very similar with movies as well. If you don't necessarily try and dig deeper or see that second meaning or you're just not interested in it. It's probably not necessarily for you, but, um, you know, going to, to George A. Romero's kind of plethora of films. I mean, he's made a ton of different ones. What would you say your like top three would be? Um, in no order, it would Mm -hmm. probably be his original three. It would be night of the living dead. Um, Oh, sorry. His original three in terms of the zombie trilogy, but Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Living Dead, and Day of the Living Dead. Or Day of the Dead, excuse me. Day of the Dead and Dawn of the Dead. Okay. Yeah. Did you like the Day of the Dead? Or I'm sorry. Was there a Dawn. Day of the Dead in uh, a second iteration of it? I think there was so only- they made, a, I believe it was a sequel of some they- sort. They've made a, a frightening amount of sequel. Like they're considered sequels. But at the same time, like they have nothing to do with the films that preceded them almost. Um, I think there's a Day of the Dead one. But I mean, in terms of the remakes of any of the movies that were based off of his original films, I think Zack Snyder's is probably one of my favorites or is my favorite. Which one is that one? Dawn of the Dead. Oh, the second one isn't by Romero. It's by Zack Snyder. Yeah, it's by Zack Snyder. It's a it's a remake. Oh, okay. Well, and I I think that's 2004. Yeah, with uh, Ving Rhames, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Uh, phenomenal movie, by the way. I would yeah. I would agree with you on Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. I wasn't 
overly crazy about Day of the Dead, although there were some pretty crazy uh, kill scenes in there. I might throw you a curveball here. I'm one of the weird few that love Land of the Dead. I didn't hate Land of the Dead, like I, some I, people did. I, like Simon Baker was great. The idea, again, I and it starts a little bit with Night of the Living Dead, that zombies learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, antagonist zombie, that like large kind of African-American zombie, um, it like learns to shoot. Yes. Yeah. Like that, you know, and they like go under. I mean, it's not necessarily realistic, but um, I just I I love the the violence in it, mm-hmm. just the, the different action sequences in that sense. Uh, I think they just did a phenomenal job of it. And um, I mean, you have Dennis, you have Dennis Hopper who plays the leader of uh, what's it called, Fiddler's Green. Yeah, Fiddler's Green. It, it's kind of just it's. I mean, again, that movie I think for as kind of how did you like to say like silly and kind of far out there as it gets with the zombie idea. Like that movie is more almost like action horror than an actual horror movie, like the original. But at the same time, he's still Romero is still injecting his social commentary into it. Cause I mean, in a lot of ways that movie is a combination of uh, capitalism in a lot of ways. We just see like how people at the top are always willing to shit on people below and like hold their power over them quite literally with Fiddler's Green, this massive sky rise that is basically built around a slum, if I remember correctly. But yeah, that that being said, man, uh, you know, uh, this movie was just so phenomenal. And I, I think in the the realm of zombie movies, this is probably the, the best one. I, I might be, I don't know if I'm in the minority necessarily of saying that, but um, I, I just think the the way that this is done, again, the budget, um, and the being the the first one, really, um, I just I, I give this so much respect. And again, George A. Romero, a massive amount of respect for being able to come up with this. Yeah, it's definitely one of those the first of something that really is timeless and it ages really, really well, which is not always the case with a lot of the kind of like the first chapter in a series that spans uh, several decades. But I'm every time I watch this movie, I'm thrilled that it holds up as well as it does and uh they made a remake of it um in 1990 maybe yeah, but was- i haven't i haven't seen the remake so maybe i'll have you on again sometime soon to uh either review more of romero's uh, zombie films or maybe some remakes down the line yeah absolutely if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to daily horror habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at daily horror habit on instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.